All right, Malachi chapter 1, take your Bibles and turn there if you would tonight. We're going to begin the final, our final study in the last book of the Minor Prophets, looking at the book of Malachi. The Bible says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? And God's reply, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, and yet I loved Jacob. Uh, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom, this was the nation that came from Esau, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of the wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, yet another opportunity to assemble together as a church family. Lord, it's always such a joy and a privilege, Lord, to gather together around your word, uh, Lord, hearing your music. And Lord, I trust edifying and encouraging one another to continue in this work. And so, Lord, tonight as we uh, are here, I pray that we can make the most of this time. Lord, you present to us truths tonight from your word, ancient and proven. And Lord, I pray as we try to understand these words spoken centuries ago, uh, Lord, that we, we would understand them and make application of them tonight. And so, Lord, we ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. The book of Malachi comes, of course, last in our study of the Minor Prophets, and also last in terms of history. This is the, the last book written in what we call the Old Testament era, a time when God primarily spoke uh, His Word through the prophets, and uh, worship was directed through and by the priests. There is some debate about the exact timestamp of Malachi. I will spend some time discussing that in a few moments. But most theologians and historians believe that Malachi lived in the days of Ezra and in the days of Nehemiah, perhaps a little bit after these two men, these leaders of a post-exile um, Israel. But, but that's when we tend to think, and that's my opinion as well, this was about a hundred years after Zechariah preached. So we just been through the book of Zechariah, those 14 chapters. And so we understand, and we have understood the mission of Zechariah was to preach the old, um, to the post-exile community, to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua, these two leaders, to engage the task of rebuilding the temple. And so this might be about a hundred years after that. So of course the temple is now functioning. So in historical context, um, just so we can understand where we're going and to whom this man is speaking. Um, it's, it's been several hundred years since Israel fell to the Assyrians. That event occurs, best we understand, probably about 722 B.C. And so um, Israel, and by that I'm talking not to the entire people, but the country of Israel, they've been in captivity now um, and really dispersed for several hundred years. Um, Judah then fell in the 500 B.C.s, probably around 587 B.C., about 100, 
hundred something years after Israel fell. And of course, uh, at that point, they went into a 70 year captivity and now they've returned. And the post exile community returned um, you know, from Babylon, now under Persian rule, as we discussed, in the early 500s. And, and so we're now from that, now another 100, probably about 400 something BC, in the time when Malachi uh, would have begun his ministry. At this time, the, the temple is complete. And we know that because temple worship is now back in order. And Malachi makes reference to the worship that's occurring in the temple. Nehemiah, along with Ezra, um, have now been leading in the building of the wall. So, they're still engaged in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And of course, we know that that happened under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra. You know, who really began to teach the people practically again, his time of ministry is probably just recently passed as well. And so, historically, we are really about 400 years before Jesus, 400 years before John the Baptist, this intertestament period where the Maccabees, as a group, kind of led the nation of Israel. The word Malachi is an interesting word. We just I kind of de facto assume it's a name. But the Malachi really was used to refer to someone as a messenger. So, a Malachi was a messenger. And we believe that it's actually a prophet, but that's what the name literally means, God's messenger. Um, there are some who think this was a letter anonymously written. Um, other people believe that it was written by Ezra. Um, because of the writings here. But we, for the most part, believe formally that there was a prophet named Malachi who actually preached these particular thoughts to the nation of Israel. Now returned. When I say Israel tonight, I am really talking about the two returned groups of people, the nation of Judah, uh, back from Babylon under Persian rule, and the scattered peoples of the nation of Israel who returned. So, I say Israel tonight, I'm referring to the combined nation as referred to before the nations split. And so, um, <clears throat> this is the time that we're discussing. Um, in this day of Malachi, because it's really important to understand this historical context to understand what God is saying here. The Jews are now what I'm going to call a semi-free nation. They have national identity again. They have a measure of sovereignty that was denied them, of course, under Babylonian uh, enslavement. Persia had a different way of dealing with the people, and so they sent them home and allowed them to temple worship. But Persia is still the predominant world power, and technically the Jews are under their auspice, um, under their control. Um, it would be another hundred years before Alexander the Great would come on the scene, and for several hundred years, you know, kind of lead the Greeks into becoming the world power before Rome would assert its authority in the days of Jesus, John the Baptist, in, of course, what we understand in the New Testament. Um, but uh, the Jews were, for our point, rooted back in Jerusalem. And for the most part, the city has been reestablished, and they have a bit of national identity once again. We know this, they're, they're involved in temple worship, they're, they're offering sacrifices, um, they're going through the rituals and routines that God had asked them to through the prophets in the Old Testament. But, this is important, while they're going through temple worship and honoring God in sacrifices, the general mood of the people was one of apathy, um, maybe discontent. They were 
unhappy with their present set of circumstances. Um, they they uh, had a measure of complaint about them. The relationship with God was present, but I might describe it as this, as they had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. That's the way the New Testament would describe it. These were people doing what they were supposed to do, sort of and kind of, but their heart wasn't in it, and it really showed by the way that they were practicing their religion. They were unhappy, they were apathetic, they had hoped, and this is why they were feeling this way. For centuries it had been foretold that the Messiah would come, and that when the Messiah would come that He would um, assert Himself uh, really in the world, and we all understand this, that He would set up a kingdom, and that really at that point Israel would be pinnacle and all the nations around them would be subservient. That would be telling they were the head and not the tail. And so they, they had looked now for centuries for the Messiah to come. And, and in their brains, um, because of, some, of the way they understood prophetic teaching, they believed that upon returning back to Jerusalem after captivity that this would be the time. This would be the time when their national promise would begin, that the Messiah would come. And so they've been looking around asking about this. We, we've studied this in Zechariah. Um, they're, they're asking, well, is, is, is the kingdom going to start? Where's the Messiah? And of course the message of Zechariah was, well, are you going to be the kind of people that the Messiah can return to? Um, he's looking at them and saying, don't worry about when the Messiah is going to come. You need to be worried about you being ready. But this, that was in their heart. Um, they were still under, you know, this, the ruling power of Persia. They, they didn't like that. Um, they just wanted to move on as they thought God had said they would. And so they were now still a tiny nation. They're insignificant, really. Um, they are subject to the world powers around them. They, they don't have the autonomy they want. And so they were serving God because that was what they were supposed to do. They were religious. Um, but they were disappointed. And let me just say it directly they were kind of disappointed in God. They felt like God hadn't come through for them. Um, and so, in this context, um, I think as we study the book of Malachi, I know we don't want to hear this, but I think of all the minor prophet books, Malachi is going to have the most relevance for us. Um, I think we're going to bear the most resemblance to the days of Malachi probably more than any other days of the minor prophets. Here were people doing what they thought was right and good. They were going to church. They were showing up. But from God's perspective, their lives really weren't showing a complete full measure of devotion. You know, I won't suggest that we are apathetic, but I might say that, you know, we, we are not uh, everything that maybe God would want us to be in terms of being sold out to Him. And so, uh, because of this, I think Malachi as a book is going to speak to us in a greater way of contextual relevance than maybe anything else we've studied so far in terms of the minor prophets. I know this, we struggle with many of the same issues today. Maybe not you, but the contemporary Christian world does. Um, there's a lot of apathetic worship today, and, uh, which is measured by attendance and the way people are committed. And, and that's a major subject of the book of Malachi is apathy. Um, there's meager and hesitant giving. All kind of research suggests that today, you know, that um, in most churches, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the people in attendance bear the majority of the financial burden. Now, I know that's not true at Eastland. While I do not know any specific numbers, 
Um, I know, you know, I ask questions about giving units and things like that. And I know we are vastly better than those kinds of norms. But I would say this, I don't, you know, I couldn't say with any confidence that everyone who's here gives or gives in the way that God would have us give. And so we can identify with that to a degree. There's uh, Malachi is filled with excuses that people give for their apathy, for their unfaithfulness. Um, there's, an, uh, you know, in all of our lives, a degree of, of inauthentic living. Uh, the Bible talks about a kind of living and giving that robs God. There is in the Christian world today some social identification with worldly values. In the text, this is shown through their relationships with neighbors and friends, but really like in the institution of marriage. And the Jews were still readily and easily divorcing. And not just divorcing, but they were divorcing in order, the men were, so they could marry, marry foreign wives. And of course, we know that Ezra and Nehemiah dealt with this as a, as a problem in their day, as Malachi is here. And, and again, Christians can fall in that kind of norm as well. And uh, so, a lot of these issues, they're not really far removed from con the contemporary church today. So, to address these issues in Malachi's day, um, you know, God speaks to him, and he receives something called an oracle. And I've used that word, you know, many, many times here in our study of the Minor Prophets. And really, an oracle is just a, it's an old way of saying a word from God, a divine revelation. Uh, God spoke in oracles or divine words to prophets, and then the prophets would then relate those oracles or those divine words from him to his people. Um, so, the, the oracle now is for Israel, the combined a group of people from Israel who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Now, the oracle in Malachi, or his word, is presented um, to these people and, you know, really to us in a brand new and unique fashion. Uh, most of the oracles that were delivered in the Old Testament were done through preaching. So, think Jeremiah. That would be the best example of that. You know, Jeremiah preached to the people. He, he proclaimed words from God. And he took what God said to him, and he preached it to the people. And so, we, we've seen that in the Minor Prophets. Um, we've seen oracles received through dreams and visions. Um, Zechariah, you know, had all these visions and dreams. And then, so he took what that, those dreams, and through angelic interpretation, was able to speak forth those words to the people. Um, we've seen Synax. You know, um, and this is, we see something throughout the Old Testament where, you know, God gives this man a message, an oracle, then he, he finds a way to illustrate that in the potter's wheel or in, you know, an extreme way, uh, you know, Hosea and Gomer. Um, you know, we, we, we see these sign acts delivered. But here in Malachi, we see something different and unique. Um, God speaks to the people through disputation or argument. And so, what we see here is this hypothetical discussion between God and His people. And we, as readers, are listening in to the conversation, to this uh, argument that God is having with His people. Now, there's not a group of people actually saying this to God per se, but this is the mood. This is the attitude of the people. What God's saying here is really reflective of a lot of national thinking. So, you and I get to listen in on these, depending on how you count them, six or seven arguments. These hypothetical arguments that God engages in and the people engage in with Him. And so, tonight, that's why we were shorter. I want to have this time to give some 
backdrop and context, we are going to look at the first, um, I'll use the word argument, or discussion um, between God and His people. And the source of this contention is about how the people feel about God's love. And uh, what they think and what is true is not right. So look up, if you would, in verse number one of our text. So we see the burden of the word. You think the word burden, look at the word responsibility. The responsibility of the word that came to uh, Malachi, and he is now going to deliver as a messenger to the people. And so in verse two, very abruptly and quickly, this oracle or this um, thought of God being communicated to the people through this hypothetical argument. Uh, begins. And so God begins his communication to this apathetic of group of people who are going through the motions of their religious culture. And he starts by looking at these people and saying to them, I love you. Okay. Now they're unhappy, they're disgruntled, they're apathetic. And God knows how they feel. So God looks at them. You know, like we might, when we know things aren't well between us and a partner, someone we love, and the context maybe looks like things are rough, but we just stop and we look at them and we say, I don't care what's going on around here. I want you to understand something. I love you. Okay. Just, that's, that's where we're going to start. God looks at his people and he says, I, I love you. And the idea here is it doesn't really matter how things look or how you feel. There's a commitment that I made. We call this a covenant that God made centuries ago to you. And my commitment to you was I would love you. And my commitment hasn't changed. Now, maybe you feel differently, but my commitment to you has not changed. And, and God's, you know, from our perspective, it's, it's like he's talking uh, a parent to a wayward child. You, you live a lot of ways, but here's your, your, this is very important, you're mine. You are mine. And because you are mine, nothing will change my love for you. I may not approve. I may have to discipline you. We, we may have some discussions that aren't happy, but I, I, I love you. I am committed to you. This, this would be like Hosea and his unfaithful wife who failed him over and over. And God's looking at this nation of people in their discontent. And he says, my commitment and our covenant is intact. And I love you. So the first thing I want to bring to your attention, because this is important us to understand the text, is what is meant by love here. And many of the connotations of the word love would still ring true in the way we use the word love today. And is that that we have feelings of affection for those whom we love. And so if I say to Terry, I love you, you know, I, I, I am saying I have warm, fuzzy feelings about you. You know, that is implied or I have affection for you. But we understand that the idea of biblical love is more than that, of course. Um, it includes the idea of warmth and affection. But the big idea is this is that, uh, you understand how I'm going to say this, in our relationship, is that you are mine. Okay. You know, not mine to possess, but you're mine to love. And I love you. You're mine. Okay. My children, they're mine. Um, 
So when I say I love them, I'm, I'm implying, and God is really implying in the text, that these people are His. Now there's even a bigger idea in the text, in that word love, is that I have chosen you. I have chosen you. So it's not I love you, therefore I've chosen you, it's I've chosen you, therefore I love you. And that order is really important. And so now, now Terry, I chose you, so I'm going to love you forever because I chose you. And, and, and like I said, as I'm never going to unchoose you. Because that's not the way my God, the mind of God works. I chose you. You're mine. So I'm going to love you because I made that covenant promise to you. I made that commitment to you. You are mine because of the choice that I made. So all that is implied in these words. And so to this, to this statement that God makes to them in this hypothetical discussion between how they really feel and the heart of God, to this statement the people, this hypothetical, hypothetical audience, um, says, well, how have you loved me? It doesn't feel like you love me. My circumstances don't show me that you love me. Now, this is from their perspective. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying this is how they feel. So look in the text in verse number 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say. Well, wherein has thou loved us? It doesn't feel like that very much. See, they, they're saying that because of the circumstances that they found themselves in. Um, you say that you chose us, but we don't feel chosen. Their mindset and heart reflected that attitude because of their circumstances. To a degree, their life was hard. These were the post-exiled Jews. They had come back. They, they, had, they had given their life for the most part in this back-breaking uh, labor of rebuilding the temple uh, probably somewhat recently, rebuilding the walls, of, of, of revitalizing this community. And, and you have this in, mind, the, in their minds and hearts, they're thinking, we deserve more than this. We expect the kingdom to be here. So, you know, God had just released them from prison, you know, Babylon captivity. He, he had blessed them enough that Persia paid for a big part of this. Um, despite all the enemies, they had found success. But they're looking at God saying, it's not enough. Where have you loved us? We don't feel very chosen. We don't feel very special. Um, th this, was their, this was their attitude and the heart that God is addressing. These people are judging God based on their personal experiences. On a self-made human standard of what they thought love was supposed to reflect. Now, God's reply to them is, you know, for some people, been a bit vexing because of the language that's used here. But what God does is He says, uh, okay, that's how you feel. I'm going to go back to, into history. Matter of fact, I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 25. Um, you know, a little bit past Abraham into the days of Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis 25. And in, in, in this audience, of course, the Jews knew their history very well. And uh, he's going to help them understand, again, that they are chosen because they're chosen. They are therefore loved. They're loved because they're chosen. So God says to them, and this seems nonsensical to us, but they would have understood this. Um, look in the text again. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? And we go, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with God's choice and His ensuing love that follows the choice. 
He says, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. Okay. Um, let me go through a little history here. The nation of Israel came historically, we know, from Abraham. He's the father of Israel. Abraham had sons, two sons, one illegitimate at the beginning, uh, Ishmael, and then his firstborn son, you could say, from Sarah. His name was Isaac. Well, in antiquity, and really in God's way of doing things, the firstborn son was always the recipient of the inheritance, or the major blessing. And yet, in this example that is really shown forth over and over in the Old Testament, God did not choose the firstborn son. He chose the second um, in Isaac. And so, He chose to bless Isaac and made him the heir of the promise, which was to multiply Abraham into a great mighty nation and to bring a Redeemer from that. So, it passed on from Abraham, not to Ishmael, but from Abraham to Isaac. Well, then Isaac had two sons, basically twins, fraternal. And we know their names as Esau, who came out first, who was a unique man and that he was red and hairy. Um, you know, there's jokes there, but I'll, I'll move on. And, and then Jacob, who was second, who was fairer. And that's relevant, this order, because Esau was technically the older brother. And it's, you know, minutes or seconds, but it mattered to, to, to their identity. And then Jacob came. And people understood that their patriarch was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Um, and they also knew this. They knew their history again. They knew Jacob wasn't the best of men. They knew he was a deceiver. They knew he had problems. They, they, he was a man who wrestled with God. He, this guy had issues. But here's the thing. God chose him. He didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. And because he chose Jacob, he loved Jacob. They came from Jacob, so I love you. You get the thinking? I know it's not the way we think today, but it's, it's like me looking at, you know, Josh and Becca back there and saying, you know, I love Ava because Joshua and Becca are mine. And so you're mine, and I love you. This is kind of the idea he's going way, way back. And this is God's point. Jacob wasn't the, best, wasn't the best of men, but he was my man, and I chose him. And even though Esau and his nation, Edom, was first, I, I chose you. And, uh, and I begat my covenant with your fathers. And this was true back to, all the way back to Moses and the covenant God made to, to the people of, uh, of Israel through Moses. He said, I have determined over the course of history, going all the way back to Jacob, to love you. And nothing has changed in all these years. You are still my choice. Now, verse 3 makes another interesting point because he presses this, and this is where we find our discomfort, or some people have found discomfort, in the language here. Look at verse 3. So, God's kind of using the reverse of His choice. Now, look up here for a second. And the point of what He's about to say is that Esau and the ensuing nation of Edom is not His choice, and that is reflected in the way their nation has um, fell out over history. So, verse 3, he says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Uh, we're going to have to hurry here. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished. So, in other words, these are not God's choice. The point being this, is that they did things that were deserving of punishment and so, God just let them be punished. 
And they said, well, we're impoverished, but we're going to go ahead and build ourselves up again. But God says, it doesn't work like that. If, if, if you do evil things, you're going to get consequences of judgment. So you can try you want to to build yourself up, but it's not going to work. If you're apart from me, then it's not going to happen. And so God just going to lay them low again. And then verse 5 says, basically, you've seen this. You've, you've witnessed that's what's happened to Esau and to Edom. I, I decided, you know, that you're outside the covenant is the language here. Therefore, you don't, you don't, you're not the recipient of these special blessings. And uh, the word hated here is colored in our minds by our contemporary understanding and thinking of the word. Hate, in this context, is not, doesn't primarily reflect negative emotion. Like if I said to you, I hate you, you'd go, wow, that's intense. You know, because there may be some huge angst in us because of some issue. That's really not what's meant here. It just means this in context. It's the opposite of being the object of, a, of love. It's, it's you're not my choice. It's, it, the whole point is, I chose you, but these people weren't my choice. Um, let me give you two biblical texts to help us understand this. In Luke 14, 26, it says this. Jesus saying, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus isn't advocating negative emotion towards toward the people who are most important to us, is he? That doesn't even make common sense. What's he saying this? Is if I am not your choice above those people, then our relationship isn't right. You can't follow me if you love even your life. If you choose life, which is really relevant to the study of Revelation, if you choose your life more than you choose me, that's not okay. See, that's hard for us. It's, it's an issue of commitment. Jesus isn't advocating that we have ill will towards our parents. He's saying this, I have to be a higher priority of choice than even family, if it comes to that, in serving me. And so that's what's being communicated here as well. It's, it's the opposite of, of that. In Proverbs 13, 24, it would be another example that all of us can relate to. It says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. Well, people who choose not to spank their kids can't even begin to relate to this verse. Like, I don't hate my kids because I don't spank them. No, you're missing the point. It's not what it's saying. It's an issue of choice again. If you choose to honor your way more than my way, if your choice in your enlightenment is something different than what I say, well, you're not looking after the best interest of your kids. That's what he says. Again, the word love and hate here are reflective of choices and commitments made. We all get that? This is not God saying, I don't like, e I don't like Esau. You know, it's not, it, 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 it's not that idea. He says, I have proven Esau was not my choice by judging him when he deserved it. And even when he tried to raise himself up in his wickedness and evil, which Esau, Edom was very guilty of that, God laid them low. He, verse 5, you've seen this. You've witnessed that truth. And here's the point. But because you're my choice, I have taken care of you throughout history over and over and over and over. And you wouldn't exist unless you were in my covenant, my choice, and the objects of my love. 
Since the days of Jacob, since the days of Moses, you found a way to overcome. That wasn't you, that was me. You, 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 there have been times where you've been overthrown and taken captive, and yet I took care of you. You were conquered by the Philistines over and over, but I took care of you. I brought you out. You were conquered by the Assyrians, and you were scattered, but I brought you back. You were overthrown by the Babylonians and even taken away from your land. But you people right now that I am talking to, you are a testament of my love because you're here talking to me. You get the idea? You're still a people and Edom is gone. What are you saying? Wherein have I loved you? His point, God's point, his argument is how can you not see this? I mean, okay. We've had these kind of discussions with people before, right? <laughs> you know, um, we have these kind of arguments with spouses and children. Um, how can you not, you know, I, the difference is none of us are perfect. But you can understand the idea. The heart here can be felt. Um, very quickly, turn to Romans chapter 9. Paul makes the same argument. And this is lengthy, and I'm not going to have time. Um, but this, this text has created the same confusion in the New Testament, because God goes back, or Paul goes back to this argument. And there's some changes here, and again, I'll, I'll do what I can very quickly. But Paul here, he, he's basically saying, I, I wish, I, I, I would rather go to hell so, so, so that my people could be saved. Because there's some confusion how the Jews of Paul's day weren't still, you know, God's choice. And um, look at verse 1. It says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, in other words, for the Jews, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory of the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. There was a day that they were God's choice by the law, and the promises, and all these things. Who's all the fathers, and of who concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, Amen. Not as though the word of God had taken that effect, for they are not Israel, which are Israel. So now, God is saying there's a, there's a difference in the way I work. There's a difference in the way that my choice and my love, people become the choice and object of my love. In the new covenant, there's something different here. He says, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. So God's now making this statement in the New Testament. Just because you came from Abraham doesn't mean that today, under this covenant, you are now my choice. But in Isaac, okay, so now we, in Isaac shall the seed be called. What is Isaac? Well, Isaac was the person God chose. Okay, so how is, we're going to get a minute, how is Isaac chose? That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise. Okay, so Isaac received a promise because God gave it to him. So the question is, well, how do you and I receive the promise of being God's choice? For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah will have a son. So he goes through how he was chosen. Uh, let's go down to verse 16. So it says, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So we become the heirs of the promise now by mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
uh, and I will harden whom I harden, and that will say unto me then, well, then why doth he find fault? For who shall resist his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? And so he, he talked about you know, the, this potter. Can the pot say to the, the, the maker, you know, why'd you do this? Verse 22, What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endures with much long suffering the vessel of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared for glory? Even us whom he hath called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So Paul's making this huge argument that now it's not just the Jews who could be God's choice, but the Gentiles also, but, but not by being born into it, but by a mercy that God extends to people is his, is his point. So now in verse 32, he says, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith. How do we get this mercy? How, how do we become God's chosen? Well, no longer by just being born, but in the new covenant, how, how, do we, how do we become God's chosen? By faith. But, you know, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They still thought you're getting saved by being born of Abraham and doing good works. But God says, it doesn't work that way anymore. And so Paul goes on, and this is how he says you become God's choice. Um, verse 8 of chapter 10. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and thy heart, as the word of faith which is preached. Here's how you become the object of God's love and part of his new covenant. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved, thou shalt be loved, thou shalt be chosen, thou shalt be the heir of the promise. For with the heart man believeth in the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture saith, the scripture saith today, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. He becomes the object of God's mercy, his choice. For there is no difference anymore between the Jews and the Greeks. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is a theological argument that the Jews didn't understand. But here's the point. That when God chooses you, you're chosen. It's done. It's over. It's, it's, that's what it is. God doesn't walk away from his choice just because it's messy. It's not good. And there's a larger point of, you know, he's, he's providing salvation to everyone here. Um, we're chosen by faith. In Malachi's day, yes, they were the Lord's chosen because they were Isaac and Jacob's seed. But God expected them, even in that old covenant, to love him. And they didn't. They were not faithful. And so, in that, they became the object of his correction. Today, we are not God's chosen by any birthright. I was saved when I was nine. My children, praise the Lord, are all saved, but that's something that they had to, to take care of themselves. Durrells are not automatically saved today. Each one has to be the object of God's mercy. When they receive that, then they are his by faith. This day when the Jews as well had to understand that Christ died for them and they stumbled at that stone that was said. And because of that, now they're outside the covenant, not his choice, but now any man can be that. So, in terms of understanding the application, because I've digressed, but trying to make a larger theological point, let me say this one more time clearly. Those who are God's choice never stop being the object of his love. They, 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 they never lose their security. They never lose their place. Um, God chose Abraham. 
Isaac and Jacob. He loved them. He was faithful. And, and so now he's looking at these people in this Old Testament era saying, and nothing has changed. And your circumstances should not dictate how you feel about my promises to you. See, what they didn't get is part of the reason they were still experiencing a level of difficulty was the fact that we think about the preaching of Zechariah um, um, and these other, other men is that they were still struggling with the same sins they were struggling with before they went into captivity. So God didn't feel fully free to bless them in the way that maybe He wanted to or intended to. They, they, were, they, they survived as a nation, they were continuing, but these people were still struggling with a, level, a small level of idolatry, of not treating each other right, of allowing poor rulers, of these sins that we've discussed. In other words, look around, guys. Your problem is your own. It's not mine. The problem is this, is you won't fully serve me and be committed to me, which is reflected in the things that I'm about to discuss with you. But your problem is you're being disciplined, but you're only being disciplined because you're mine and I love you. You with me? And they failed to say, oh, they just thought, nah, God's not fair. Got you stop. You ever felt that way? Anybody here a little spiritually spoiled? If you're saved, look up here. God loves you. And nothing that happens in this life changes that. But the struggle is this. You may not always feel that way. But my marriage fell apart. My kids are wayward. I'm broke. There's reasons for that. Maybe I understand. Maybe I don't. Maybe you understand. Maybe you don't. But it does not change the fact, if you're His, that He loves you. And if you feel that way, that's a problem. Because that's not how God feels. You are eternally secure. That, that's a problem that you have. It's not a problem with God. He absolutely loves you. Yeah, but my, but my life. If you called upon the name of the Lord, then you are His and He loves you. And in the big scheme, you're going to see that and get that in time. Even if it's not fully perceived in this life and the life to come, God will make it clear. This is where we get the doctrine of eternal security in part. And, but this is where we need to get the psychology of it, too. I mean, nothing is healthier for a person than to feel really loved and appreciated. And to know that's settled. You know, if I wondered every day if Terry loved me or not, that's brutal. And that would negatively impact my life. God does not feel that way about you. He loves you. It's settled. It's done. You're chosen through faith. And if you've accepted by faith, then that's done. So I, I can segue that to this thought. Again, circumstances just should not determine your theology. I can say it this way. Circumstances should not dictate your faithfulness or commitment to Him or make you question His love. And in practical ways, this ekes out of us all the time. There's times when hardships hit, hit us, and then so do feelings. There's a few times when people have experienced negative in life, and they walked away from God. And we know people like that, don't we? Inexplicable circumstances hit them, and so what they do, they question God's love, and therefore if God's going to treat me this way because, you know, I deserve so much better, I'm out. Now, most, that doesn't describe most of us when negative circumstances hit our life. 
we're more like the people of Malachi's day. Well, where's God? And why do bad things happen to good people like me? And does he really love me? This is the way my life's turned out. And if not that, we worry and we fret and we complain. Like if we were absolutely convinced that God loved us, we wouldn't do any of those things. We wouldn't complain. We, 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 we wouldn't act that way. If we're not, if we're honest, we, we're often spoiled like these people. We think we merit and deserve better. And we show it. And so tonight, I, I think we need, if the circumstances of our lives aren't exactly what we think we deserve, can I suggest to you that maybe you need to consider the choices of your life? Or maybe just realize it rains on the just and unjust in a fallen world. Don't say about that. But do not, do not ever in life's difficulties question the goodness and the love of God. All things will forever and always work together for good for those who love God. How come? Because He loves them. It's a promise. All right. Let me ask you to stand.